Today we continue in Acts chapter 25. Last week we looked um, at verse 13 to verse 22. We studied the context and the circumstances that were leading up to Paul's uh, last trial, the, the fifth and final trial that we see recorded in the book of Acts. And today the stage has been set for Paul to plead his case and bear his witness before um, King Agrippa. And that's what we will be looking at this morning together. So please stand with me as we read this passage in respect to God's Word. We will be reading from verse 23 of chapter 25 to verse 23 of chapter 26. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, at midday O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. 
but rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I, have, I, I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this testimony that Paul has given. We thank you, Lord, for the resurrection of your Son, Jesus, that makes our faith in you possible, that really makes all sense that we can gather here together today, worshiping the risen Lord, not a dead God who is still in the grave. Thank you that you are alive today, that we can sing our praises to you, knowing, Lord, that you are hearing us. And we ask today, Lord, as we worship you now in the Word, Father, please speak to us. We ask, Lord, that you would please open our, our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts to what you have for us this morning. And we pray, Father, that you would quieten our hearts. We pray, Father, that you would grant us attention and that you would be glorified in our responses today. So, Lord, we pray for your help. We ask, Lord, please minister to our hearts and souls today for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you. So if you take a Bible concordance and you look up the word witness, or you look up the word witnessing, or the word witnessed, you will find they are mentioned 33 times in the book of Acts. And the word witness is found first in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and the last time in Acts chapter 26, verse 22, which is in our text this morning. And our text gives us the longest of Paul's defenses in the, the book of Acts. It is the third time that Luke records Paul's testimony of conversion. And Paul uses this last opportunity once again to be a witness of Jesus Christ. And we see in his witness that Paul was bold as he stood before Festus, the governor of Caesarea, as well as King Agrippa, as he confronted them with the claims of Christ. And today we're going to look at this bold witness. But before we do, I wanted to share this poll that was conducted by a church directory service a few years ago. And one of the questions asked was, why did you choose to come to this church? 
And the results were 18% said they had prior denominational um, ties to their church. 9% said um, there was a pretty building, that, they, that that was the reason they chose to come. 3% said because the minister came to visit them. And then while over half, over 50% came for one simple reason, somebody had invited them. Somebody had invited them to church. Well, I want you to think of that as we go through this passage this morning, as we look at the Apostle Paul, who was being a faithful witness, who was being a true witness. And we look at his example of what a true witness should look like. So my first point is from verse 23 to verse 27 in chapter 25. And there we see Paul is brought before King Agrippa. Now remember, King Agrippa, as we saw last week, he liked the the ceremony, he liked the, the pomp and the show, and he was accompanied by his his sister, who was his wife, by his side. And we read in the text that he was also accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city. And once this grand entrance into the auditorium was complete, Festus commanded Paul to be brought in. And this introduction that Festus makes to King Agrippa for this hearing before him is, is interesting. The introduction he makes of Paul is, is very interesting. Festus tells Agrippa that the Jews, both in Jerusalem as well as in Caesarea, were asking that Paul be put to death. And Festus tells King Agrippa, look at verse 25 there, that his own assessment of the situation is that Paul had done nothing deserving of death. The problem is Festus had got himself into a difficult situation. It was Roman law that if a man appealed to Caesar, he was sent to Rome, there had to be some type of a a written document, some type of a a written account of the case and of the charges against him. And Festus didn't have that. This was the problem. Festus didn't have this. There was no charge. There was nothing that he could have written on paper. And that is why this meeting with King Agrippa was so important for him. Remember, King Agrippa was a Jew, and we see in our text that he had some understanding of the, the, the ceremonies and of the religious system of the Jews. And that's why this meeting had been organized by Festus. But we see in our second point from chapter 26, from verse 1 to, 1 to 7, Paul shares his background first with King Agrippa. In verse 1, we see King Agrippa invites Paul to make his own defense of himself. And Paul starts his defense by addressing King Agrippa in a, in a proper and respectful way. And then he begins relating to King Agrippa his life story growing up as a, as a Jewish boy in Jerusalem. And he says in verse 5 that he had lived as a strict Pharisee observing all of the, the Jewish laws. And that's important for us to understand. Paul was a Pharisee. Now, what is a Pharisee? 
Well, the Pharisees were a party in Israel whose existence began during the Babylonian captivity. And they eventually evolved to be called Pharisees, which means the called out ones. And they were called out ones or Pharisees because they wanted to be separate from everybody else. They, in fact, separated themselves from all of the, the wickedness of, of the world. Um, they wanted to be identified as these types of people. But the Pharisees had begun originally because they were a group who, a group who believed that there were two laws of Moses. There was the written law, and then they believed that there was an oral law as well. And that the written law was what they called the Pentateuch, and that consisted of the first five books of the Bible. Um, however, they believed that the second law that Moses had taught was an oral law that was passed down to them. They believed this oral law received by Moses on on Mount Sinai wasn't actually written on any document, but it was passed down from generation to generation. And the oral laws called for stricter regulations, stricter in their performance um, in order to make somebody right with God. In other words, they were laws that were on top and above of the existing written laws. And these pharisaical rabbis began to accumulate all these oral um, communicated rules and regulations and make them more important than the ones that had been written and recorded faithfully. The Pharisees had stuck to these really self-imposed standards and they had kept their man-made rituals and their man-made requirements. But the problem with these Pharisees is that their hearts were, were far away from God. And we see the Lord Jesus rebuking them in Matthew chapter 23, talking about how good they looked on the outside, but on the inside their, their hearts were, were wicked. The problem was they did not do the things that they did because they loved God, but rather they did them so that they could impress men, so that they could be seen by man and seen to be righteous. They were self-righteous. They were not made righteous by the Lord, they were self-righteous. And Paul says in verse 6, he tells King Agrippa that he is on trial for the hope of his fathers. So look in verse 6 there. In verse 6 he says, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And then it says, And for this hope... I'm accused by Jews, O king. Notice the word hope is used twice in two verses there. The hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. And this hope that Paul is referring to in verse 6 is the inheritance that would be brought to man by the Messiah. Even the Pharisees knew about this. This was written in the written rules and commands in the scriptures, the law of God, the word of God. This was the hope of eternal life that they were clinging on to, the hope of the Messiah that would bring them eternal life. And Paul tells Agrippa that the real contention that the Jews have with him has to do with the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus. And he talks about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. 
Now turn with me quickly, keep your finger there in Acts chapter 26. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12, Paul wrote that before coming to Christ, we, he says, are all without hope. Look at verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, alienated, which means excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. And then again, he says, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul later writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 um, that non-believers, for all non-believers, there was no hope beyond the grave. That all non-believers have to look forward to, in fact, is, is hell. But he stresses that believers, our hope assures us that when Christ returns, He will bring with Him all the Christians who have departed out of the world. He says in 1 Thessalonians, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And later on in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes to the Christians about a living hope. We sang that song this morning, didn't we? Not a dead hope. He talks about a, a living hope which is undefiled and will not fade away and is reserved for us in heaven. Remember the story of a mall that I shared with you a few weeks ago during our Missions Emphasis Week. I shared about a mall who we had met while we were ministering in India in Mirage. Amol was 10 years old uh, when we met him. He was only three years old when one of the church members found him abandoned at a nearby railway station as he was begging for food. And Amol was loved and he was raised by the members of this church. And they, be they became aware that Amol was very sick because he had HIV. And this made them more intentional as they cared for him and as they shared the gospel with him. And this church invested their lives into Amal, and, and Amal had made a profession of, of faith in Christ before he, before he died. Amal was 13 years old when he, when he died of HIV, which he got from his mother at birth. And the church asked me to speak at his funeral that, that same day. And so that evening, we, we gathered together in a small church building on the hospital campus where Amal lived. Um, so that we could grieve together and console one another. And I felt that the Lord wanted me to teach from First Peter, First Peter that night, because First Peter is really talking about this hope that we have in Christ. It's the theme of the book of First Peter. And while the evening had been very teary for everybody, as was expected, but before I had finished teaching from First Peter, the Lord had used the, the truth, of our hope that we have in Christ, really to, to dry everybody's tears in that room. It was a wonderful experience to see. Everyone's sorrow and grief was turned into peace. It was turned into joy through the Holy Spirit as we concentrated our thoughts upon this living hope that we have 
in Christ. What an incredible hope we as Christians have. Our hope as Christians isn't wishful thinking. It's not even positive thinking or I hope that, that I will drive a Ferrari someday. We don't know if that hope is going is to come true or not. It's not wishful thinking. The hope that we have in Christ is a confident expectation. And I encourage the church that, that we will meet them all again because of this living hope, not this dead hope. And Paul wrote in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, about the hope that we as Christians have through Christ because He's the anchor of our souls that causes us to be unmoved by all of the, the storms that we face in this life. He says in chapter 6, verse 19, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. I think a big part of our growth as Christians comes from our understanding of this, this living hope. It comes from an understanding and knowledge of what it is that our hope in Christ consists of and what we are to cling to and what we shouldn't cling to. As we see in this passage, a ship must be anchored. It must be anchored solidly on the bottom. If it's not anchored on a rock, if it's anchored on, on sand that is movable, the, sea will drift, the, the, the boat will drift away, the boat will be lost. But our anchor is not anchored on loose sand. It is on a solid rock that keeps us firm. Let me ask you some questions this morning. Is your hope anchored on a solid rock? Is your hope maybe anchored on your career? Is your hope anchored maybe on worldly possessions? Is your hope maybe anchored on a, on a future marriage? Is your hope anchored maybe on the philosophies of this world? Well, as Christians, our hope as believers must be on the solid rock. Our hope in having and knowing Jesus in our lives, not a, a hope for what He might give us, not for a hope in the, the things of this, this world. And the hope that Paul had, this, this guaranteed hope that he talks about in verse 6 is the same hope that we that we cling on to for eternal life through the the resurrected messiah and the same the same hope that keeps our eyes on the the cross when the world around us is is falling apart and paul goes on now to talk about being a faithful witness he shows us an example of what it is to be a faithful witness of this solid hope, this real hope that we have as believers in Christ. So from verse 8 to verse 23, we see my third point, how Paul now calls for a response. Those who are in this hope, those who have anchored their anchors on the solid rock, he calls for a response. Look at verse 8. Paul asks an important question. He says, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So remember, Paul is addressing King Agrippa here. He is a nominal 
cultural Jew who at least has, has read the Scriptures. He, he says to him that his hope that was promised to the Jews is worthless if there was no resurrection of the dead. In other words, if you believe in the God of the Bible, King Agrippa, you must necessarily believe that he has the power to raise the dead. And as Paul goes on to assert, the fact that God raised up Jesus proves that Jesus is the Messiah of the Bible. And Paul's logic here is solid. If you believe in the God who created all things, who spoke life into existence, you must also admit that God has the fundamental power to raise the dead. It's logical, he says. And then from verse 12 to verse 15, Paul goes on to recount again his own dramatic encounter, his own experience with this risen Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road. And as I mentioned last week, you know, critics might say that Paul only saw a vision or or Paul only had a hallucination. He didn't actually see the risen Lord Jesus, critics will argue. But if Paul had been the only one to make such a claim, perhaps we would have to accept that, that argument, or at least not build our case on it. But last week we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, you can take this note down next to the margins of your Bible, Paul states that, the risen Lord appeared to, to Peter as well, as well as all the other apostles, as well as over 500 followers at one time, most of whom were still alive when Paul wrote. It wasn't just Paul that he appeared to. There was many, many others, over 500. It's impossible to argue that 500 people had the same hallucination at the same time. It's impossible. Maybe you're still arguing in your head that, well, I can't expect you to believe because you personally haven't seen the resurrected Jesus. Maybe you've heard somebody argue like that. Well, let me counter that argument. You know, we all believe in things that we cannot see and in people that we, we do not know. Do you believe that there is a King Charles, Heather? Where's Heather? Have you seen King Charles, personally? Has anybody seen King Charles personally? Have you met him? But you've trusted in the eyewitness accounts of others, haven't you? You, know, you trusted that the people who packaged the cereal that you ate for breakfast, they didn't poison it. You, you trusted them, didn't you? You trusted that the mechanic who, who fixed your, your brakes, he did a good job, isn't it? You trusted him? You trusted your employer to deposit, de, to deposit your money into your account and, and not to, to steal it. And if you accept the witness of man, the Bible tells us in 1 John, the witness of God concerning his son is much greater, is much greater God will hold us accountable if we reject the eyewitness testimony that He has given us regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul's point is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a historical event. 
It's not a fictitious event. The miracle of Jesus' resurrection is possible because God exists. It is proved by eyewitness testimony. It is proved by the, the changed lives of the disciples and the apostles. And it is supported by the Hebrew Scriptures. So what stops people from believing these, these facts? Now, apart from Christ, all people, no matter how brilliant their, their minds are, are darkened by this understanding. They are darkened in their understanding. Now, people in their naturally fallen condition cannot grasp the awesome holiness of God. If you had asked Paul before his conversion whether he believed that God is holy, I'm sure that he would have said, yes, yes, I do believe this, of course. He knew that fact intellectually, but only when that light that we read about here in his testimony, the light brighter than the, sh the sun shone from heaven, did Paul realize that God was really holy and he was really sinful, that he was a sinner, sinner more than he had ever imagined. Previously, Paul thought that his own good deeds as a Pharisee would qualify him for, for heaven, would qualify him to dwell in God's presence. But the instant the light of God's holiness struck him to the ground, Paul, like Isaiah and all the other prophets, was undone. He was undone. He realized that his own sinfulness, his own holiness was like filthy rags in the sight of God. The gospel had removed these scales from his eyes. Look at Paul's response to this work of grace in his life. Look at verse 18. Paul said that God sent him to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Him. And Paul had realized that because he was a hypocritical Pharisee, he kept kicking against the goads, he kept resisting the truth, he kept resisting the light, he kept believing that he was self-righteous, that he had no need for a Savior. He probably would have thought, well, I'm glad that I'm not like the other Gentiles. I pay tithes, I fast, and I pray. But when this light from heaven had blinded him, Paul instantly realized that he could never qualify for heaven because of his deeds, because of his works. And Paul eventually submitted to the gospel of grace. And at an instant... Paul saw that he was far more sinful than he thought he was, far more than he had ever imagined. And when Paul responded in repentance and he believed in Jesus Christ, we see this 180-degree turnaround. And Paul no longer put his faith and trust in his, in his works, in his hypocritical deeds. He put his faith and trust in grace. And the resurrected Savior, grace that he didn't deserve. And as a result of his changed life and his changed 
thinking. He was able to preach a gospel that could make a difference. Instead of killing people and forcing them to follow works, he preached about a resurrected Savior that would save by grace. He was freed from this bondage. He was freed from his blindness. He was freed and forgiven and given a freedom and a new life and a, and a greater zeal for others that were lost in the same darkness as he was. And he preached this gospel, this forgiveness of sins that could be found in Christ alone. Look at the difference and the change in direction that his life took. Look at, look at verse 19 and verse 20. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to this heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So in verse 20, Paul tells of his obedience to the vision that he had. And he kept declaring both to Jews and to Gentiles that they should repent and that they should turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. So whether you have been a religious person as, as Paul was, as, as the Jews were, or whether you've been a, a basic pagan like the Gentiles were that we read about here, the message is the same. The message is the same. Repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Biblical repentance is not just a change of a mind or an intellectual understanding of who God is. That, that's not repentance. Repentance is a turning of the whole person from from sin to God. We are saved from our sins. We're no longer worshiping or serving sin. Now we have a new master and we serve him. And this results in a life of obedience. A life of obedience to God from our hearts. And our response to the fact of Jesus' resurrection should be a genuine repentance. It shouldn't be a pharisaical one, isn't it? shouldn't be a hypocritical one, calling ourselves Christians with no changed life, turning from our sin and living a life of obedience that displays this fruit of Christ and the Spirit of God in our lives. Do people see that in you? Has there been a true repentance in your life? Paul says, once you've saved by the grace of God, we must act like it. We cannot walk with the saints and continue to run with the devil. We need to live a life doing things that make people wonder what makes you so different. And then when they ask what makes you so different, how come you have hope when everybody is falling apart? How come you have hope when things are hard? That's when we get to tell them. That's when the doors, the opportunities are open for us. 
that's not going to happen if we're not living for Christ. That's not going to happen if there hasn't been a change in our lives. And one night after battle, Alexander the Great, he couldn't sleep. And he left his tent to walk around the camp. And he came across a soldier who was asleep on guard duty. That was a very serious offense. In fact, the penalty for falling asleep on guard duty was in some cases instant death. It's been recorded that commanding officers sometimes poured kerosene on the sleeping soldier and lit it. Well, this particular soldier began to wake up as Alexander the Great approached him. And recognizing that he was who he was standing in front of, the young man obviously feared for his life. Alexander asks him, do you know what the penalty is for falling asleep on guard duty? Yes, sir, the soldier responded in a, in a quivering voice. And then Alexander demanded, soldier, what is your name? And the soldier says, my name is Alexander. And Alexander the Great repeated his question, what did you say was your name? My name is Alexander, sir, the soldier repeated. And the third time, and more loudly, Alexander the Great asked, What is your name? And the third time, the soldier meekly said, My name is Alexander, sir. And Alexander the Great then looked the young soldier straight in the eye and said to him, Soldier, either change your name or change your conduct. Well, I don't think we should change our names as Christian, right? Christian means little Christ. It's a very appropriate name for followers of Jesus, like we profess to be, right? The Scripture is teaching us today that if we call ourselves Christians, then we must act like it. If we are going to be faithful soldiers for our King, we can't be sleeping on on the job. We need to be living lives of fruitful obedience that display the glory of God for all to see. So that when they ask us of this living hope, we will be able to tell them confidently. I want to conclude this morning on a word of encouragement. Look at verse 22. Paul says, To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great. What an encouraging word that should be to all of us. If you have a pen or a pencil, underline that verse in your Bible. Now, God calls us to be a faithful witness. But He enables us to do that work. He enables us to do that task. Remember, no one is more important than the God that you serve. None is more powerful to equip you than the God that you serve. So don't be afraid. Don't give up. Believe that God is working in your life. Believe that God will bring you through times of rejection a better person. And there will be those times. The rest of verse 22 and verse 23 says that God helped Paul to stand so that he could testify of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
With God's help, we can stand. With God's help, we can stand. Turn with me, last verse that I want you to see in 1 Peter chapter 3. Very important verse, and maybe you've memorized this already. 1 Peter chapter 3. I'll finish on this verse this morning. Peter says in verse 15, But in your own hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. The Bible tells us that we should always be willing and ready to talk and tell others about our faith. You can't be obedient and be a spectator. You can't call yourself a Christian and and not be interested in sharing Christ with others. And perhaps you have been a spectator for too long. Well, believer, we must be ready to share the good news even when it's difficult, even when we will be rejected, even if those hearing may be more powerful people who do not want to hear the message of Christ, even if they are our boss. Paul was faithful to his calling. But will you commit again to the Lord this morning to imitate the example of Paul? Will you be a faithful witness of our resurrected Savior and run with the saints and resist the devil? An unbeliever, let me address you this morning. Perhaps you recognize today that you have never had this life-changing experience that we read about in the Scriptures that we talked about this morning. Perhaps there's an emptiness or a sense of lacking something in your life. And you, like Paul, realize the road that you're on is not the one that, that leads you to God. And you know God is calling you, and you want to surrender your life to Him. You want to live in obedience to Him, and you want to live in His strength and the promise of eternal life. And please come and speak to me afterwards so that I can pray with you. Our God is alive. He is not dead. And He has promised that He would be with us. And all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Him. Be encouraged this morning. Father, we thank You for Your Word today. We thank You for the witness of the Apostle Paul that we can learn from. We thank You for His boldness. Even, Lord, though He was tried unfairly, even though he had so much to complain about, still, Lord, he was willing to share of the hope that he has because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was able to use all of these circumstances for good. And we thank you for that promise, Lord, that you do use all things for good for those who love you, even our difficult situations that we find ourselves in. But Lord, I pray this week that you would help us to be faithful and obedient, that we wouldn't be found sleeping on the job. Father, that we would reflect faithfully the name of Christ to those around us who are lost in darkness and in their sin. I pray this week, Lord, 
that you would give us the grace to live in front of our friends and our peers and our colleagues a life that displays the glory of God, the beauty of God. When people ask us about Christ, that we'll be willing and ready to tell them and share the good news of how they may be delivered from their sin and may find forgiveness and eternal life. So please, Lord, we pray. Equip us. May we be found in your word this week. May we be found praying this week. May we be found more dependent on you this week as we seek to share the good news with those lost around us. So, Father, we pray for your help today. May your, may your name be exalted and may you be glorified amongst us. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. Amen.